Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Isn't it wonderful to be able to sing those words? And if you couldn't sing those words, I pray that by the time you leave this place this morning, you will be able to. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 18. We have been working through the Gospel of John since the beginning of last year, and we're coming down to the home stretch, the last four chapters, really the last few hours of Jesus' earthly life. We've just finished the final discourse, Jesus' great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, the greatest prayer ever prayed. And now we are beginning John chapter 18. It'll take us several weeks to get through. Uh, Obviously, I'm here this week. I I hope you've noticed that. Next two weeks, though, I'm going to be gone. Uh, Jennifer and I are going to California for a family wedding. And then the following week, if you remember Ed Moore, the brother who is a pastor in Queens, New York, who's become a good friend of ours, uh, he has invited me to come speak at a conference in some place called New Jersey. And so Jennifer and I will be going up to New Jersey the following week, and so uh, Tyler and Robert, respectively, will guide us through the next few portions of John chapter 18 over the coming two weeks, and then I'll be back and we'll get back into John chapter 19. This is an intense and chaotic scene that we're about to enter into here in John chapter 18, one of the saddest and most remarkable Occurrences in all of Scripture, the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus, God the Son, in the flesh. So here's the way we're going to work through this text. I'm going to read it all, and then we're going to work our way back through, and I want us to notice a few things in this text. But as I read this text, just 14 verses that we'll look at today, I want you to do your best to pay attention, to imagine the scene, to put yourself in this moment as best you can. To not just sort of let the reading of the scripture just sort of float over you like water that's just sort of washes off of our back. But let's think, let's imagine, let's put ourselves in this scene and let's contemplate the word of the Lord to us. Let me pray before I read. Father, Jesus prayed in the previous chapter that you would sanctify us by your word, which is truth. Do that, I pray. This morning, help us to see Jesus. Help us, those of us that are trusting in him, to be transformed more into his image by our time in your word, by the songs that we've sung, by the prayers that we've prayed, by the word that I will preach and that we will listen to, Lord. Transform us, I pray. And for any friends that are here, as we've prayed several times already, if there are any friends in this room who do not yet know Jesus, Lord, would you give them what you require of them? Would you give them eyes to see and a heart to believe so that they can sing along with us? It is well with their soul. Lord, do that, I pray, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. 
John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, meaning the final discourse in his prayer in John chapter 17, this is the night of the Last Supper, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So again, he, so, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is God's holy and inerrant word. There's a few things I want us to see as we work through this text. I want us to look at the first three verses again, and I want us to notice first the hardness of Judas's heart. The hardness of Judas's heart. So remember, all the way back at the beginning of this final discourse, in John chapter 13, the beginning of this Last Supper, this last meal that Jesus has with his disciples, we read of the beginning of the betrayal of Judas. Jesus talks about how he's going to give the bread that he dips in the cup to the one. When, when Peter asks him the question, or John asks him the question, he gives it to Judas, and Judas takes it and runs out. And we read from a, another gospel, Matthew chapter 26, that even before this dinner in John chapter 13 that we read about, that Judas had already conspired. He was already making inquiry of how much that he would get in earnings and silver if he sold Jesus out. And, and here we've, we see this plan of Judas that's been working in his heart, coming to fruition. And so look again at verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, they went out to this brook where there was a garden. He and his disciples entered. Verse 2, now Judas, John's careful to mention his name. Judas, who betrayed him, 
also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas had kind of reconned. He knew where Jesus would be. This wasn't a spur-of-the-moment decision in a, in a time of distress or despair or, or anger or frustration or disillusionment. Judas had been brewing this plot in his heart for some time. In verse 3, Judas, again, his name is mentioned, having procured a band of soldiers. This would probably have been up to a, a, a battalion of, of hundreds of Roman soldiers. And they were there with the officers. In our mind's eye, we maybe think of just a few people, Jesus with his disciples, and maybe just a few from this arresting party. But this band, this cohort of Roman soldiers who the Jewish religious authorities have procured through Judas's uh, plot. We're talking dozens, if not maybe hundreds of people that have come to arrest Jesus. And I want us to just notice briefly the progression of Judas's heart. When we looked at his initial betrayal in the Lord's Supper in John chapter 13, we, we saw that at that moment that he takes the bread from Jesus, that, that John uses this descriptive phrase that the devil entered into the heart of, Jesus, into the heart of Judas. We know from Matthew 26, as I mentioned before, that he'd already begun to plot against Jesus. And we see this internal conflict in Judas. The point I'm trying to make is that this betrayal of Jesus was no on-the-spot bad moment for Judas. In fact, we read, and I'll just flip over to Matthew 27, we'll have it on the screen, we see that later on, after this happens, that we see this regret and this sorrow and this second-guessing in Judas's heart. Matthew chapter 27, the first five verses, when morning came, this is after Jesus has been arrested now, accounting in Matthew's gospel, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. I want us to just get inside Judas's heart for a moment and just see the internal conflict that was going on in Jesus. Because I think sometimes if we don't think about the story of Judas and Judas's heart, we tend to sort of disregard Jesus, Judas and say, oh my gosh, there's this man, who, how could he betray Jesus when we don't see the internal conflict? We are prone to be much more like Judas than maybe we automatically think. He was with Jesus for three years. He saw Jesus do all of these miracles. And yet, at some point along the way, he gave himself over. Maybe he was greedy. Maybe he had a lust for power or wealth or whatever or acclaim. Maybe there was an offense that he didn't deal with. But whatever the case, somewhere along the way, it's not like Judas entered into this as one of Jesus' disciples knowing that he was going to betray Jesus. Probably along the way, Judas would have thought that, wow, what an honor to be one of the twelve with this great teacher who's doing these great things. And you can imagine Judas imagining his future as being with the Messiah. And yet somewhere along the way, something happened, some offense, some open door, some opportunity for the devil 
to wedge himself into Judas's heart. And then, before Judas knew it, over the course of time, he found himself in a place where he never probably thought he would be, sliding down the backside of a mountain that he just couldn't put the brakes on. And this is how sin works. This is how betrayal works. We give ourselves over to something small and we justify it. And it never rarely just yanks us away in a moment to where the consequences of that little decision becomes obvious to us. But it slowly takes us away like a riptide underneath the surface of the ocean that we can't see. But before we know it, we are pulled out to the ocean and we are drowning. We rationalize. We justify. And then we start believing our own lies. And that's where Judas is. This is a warning to us about the human heart. But before we move on, I don't want to depress you this morning. What do you do if you realize that you might be on this trajectory or if your heart is hard? What do you do if you sense that your heart, which was once soft, is becoming hard to the things of the Lord? Well, friends, here's the beauty of the sweet paradox of grace. The good news of the gospel is not that you must now climb back up that mountain that you are sliding back down. The good news of the gospel is that God delights in giving the human heart the ability that it doesn't inherently have. He can change a hard heart. If you realize this, do not harden your heart, Hebrews says. Turn to the Lord. Confess your sin to a trusted friend. Don't leave this room before you you go out of this place without talking to somebody. Talk to a pastor. Talk to a trusted friend. Talk to a friend in Christ and say, my heart is vulnerable. I'm being dragged away by my own deception. This word, this picture of Judas is a warning to us all. That the heart can deceive itself. But yet, this warning isn't to give us no hope. It's to actually be hope to us. Let Judas be, listen to this, let Judas' story be a warning to woo you, not a wall to prevent you. And you might think, well, how does that work? I mean, my heart just seems, my heart is so racked with anxiety and fear and shame and guilt and sin. And how can I turn to the Lord? I just feel so weak. I don't have the strength within me. But that's the, that's the beauty of grace. That's the paradox of grace. God, if just realizing that is part of the work of God in your life. Spurgeon has this wonderful quote. He says, don't, don't try and figure it out. I'm just paraphrasing here. Spurgeon says, don't, don't be like the starving man who has to understand all the intricacies of nutrition before you grab for the bread. What a wonderful picture. How does this work? I don't know if I'm strong enough. I don't. You realize it. You're hungry. Grab for the bread. Right now, this word is to you. Don't be like Judas. Don't slip down the mountain. Don't find yourself in a place that you can't recover from. Reach out to God. Confess your sins to him. Go to a brother or sister and experience the sweet paradox of grace. So let's be warned. Not prevented but wooed by Judas and his example. Let's keep going. Let's look at verses 4 through 9. So that's the hardness of the human heart. I want us to see 
just the authority of Jesus. What's remarkable about John's account, and this arrest is mentioned in all of the Gospels, but what is particularly remarkable about John's account is it's just so obvious that he intends to show us that Jesus is in complete control. In fact, Jesus is bringing up the questions. He's setting the tempo. He's doing all the talking. So let's, let's look again at verses 4 through 9. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Now that's how it's translated here in English from the original language that Jesus would have been speaking and John would have been writing. But that is an echo to that, that I am statement that's laced all throughout John. Back in John 8, Jesus uses the Old Testament phrase, I am, the same phrase that God uses to reveal himself to Moses, which would have been a clear a claim of deity. So Jesus, again, is, is not just saying, it's, it's me, here I am, sort of in a physical sense, like he's, like he's raising a hand if role is taken in class. But embedded in this I am statement by Jesus is a divine authority. Jesus says, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them when Jesus said to them, I am he. Look at this. Now, don't, don't miss this. They, so I think we can assume everybody that was there to arrest Jesus, this cohort of Roman soldiers, all of the Pharisees, drew back and fell to the ground. Have you ever been in a room or a field or a situation where there are, at a minimum, dozens of people and somebody speaks and all of them fall down? Would you not, I mean, would you not sort of take note of that? Like, what, 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 just, what just happened? And yet, what's so interesting about John's account is the, ac- the accent is not on this really remarkable thing that just happened. Jesus said, I am he. And at least a dozen, maybe more, maybe a hundred, maybe more Roman soldiers fall down. That, that would cause me to sort of wonder what's, what's happening here. But yet, they get back up. Jesus asks them again. It's almost like, okay, get, get back up, fellas. Come on. I want, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let you off the hook. You're going to have to really arrest me. This plan is going to happen. It's all, you know, there's an opportunity. They all fall to the ground. Hey, guys, let's run. No, Jesus stays there, waits for him to get back up, asks him again. It's almost as if Jesus intends to let this happen because God the Father has willed that the cross would happen. And, and I'm being silly. It's not almost as if that is exactly what's going on. Jesus is not a victim in any way. Nothing is happening to Jesus. He is the willing, commanding initiator of this scene. Remember in John chapter 10 where Jesus says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I take it back up. And so he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And then verses 8 and 9 are interesting. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Referring to his disciples that were with him. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. And this is what Jesus said back in John chapter 17. Of whom you have given me, I have lost no one. So in his prayer to the Father back in John chapter 17, he says, I've lost none of them except for the son of perdition that we knew that was going to deny me anyway. And so in a strange, beautiful way, Jesus in verses 8 and 9 
is giving us a picture of his preserving grace in the life of his disciples. But what are we to make of this? Because even though Jesus, so he's in control, you're, if you're getting arrested, you don't generally tell the officers who gets to stay and go. But he's in such authority here that he's telling them, look, let these guys go. I'm the one you're looking for. And they go. And he then says, this was to fulfill that I've lost no one that you've given me. But what's going on with that? Because later on, we see that the disciples in their earthly ministry after Jesus' crucifixion and ascension to heaven, we see that they do suffer harm at the hands of of a hostile government. Uh, In fact, most of, if not all of the disciples, except for John, the writer of this gospel, likely suffered a martyr's death at the hands of political power. And so this is not not a promise that we will somehow uh, escape earthly discomfort or even persecution, but it's Jesus in that moment giving us a picture that he, spiritually speaking, will lose none of those that the Father has given him. All those that the Father has given him will make it all the way home. Jesus' work on the cross actually, actually accomplishes salvation. It doesn't just make salvation possible. And if you want to think more about that, if you want to go deeper into why we think those truths are so central in the scriptures, go to Tyler's class on the doctrines of grace and you'll understand this biblical doctrine of the definitiveness of Jesus' work, the, the definitiveness of the atonement. Those whom the Father has given me will come to me and I will lose none of them. It doesn't mean that they won't face earthly persecution. It means that they will not forsake me they will make it all the way home. So how can we apply this in our lives before we move on to the last few passages? Well, friends, again, we see this all throughout John. We see this all throughout Scripture. I hope you know this note that we often play here at Crosspoint. It is the utter sovereignty and providence of God. The Lord is in control. And nothing, there's no event in our life, there's no chaotic garden scene that we might face where we are somehow hanging in the balance, Jesus will protect his people. But how does he do that? He does it through a thousand unremarkable events in our lives. He does it through the means of grace, through church life, through living together, through giving yourselves into a relationship of spiritual accountability with other Christians, which is the life of an imperfect local church. How does God guard his people? How does he ensure that they make it all the way home and that Jesus doesn't lose any of them by waving a magic spiritual wand over us at the moment of our salvation? No. He does it through the means of grace, through a conversation that might happen later on today in the hallway, in the foyer, where somebody might look in somebody else's eyes and say, hey man, I haven't seen you. How you doing? How are you? Hey, that thing I've been praying about, how can we get together for coffee and somebody that has a concern, a church member here that has a concern for another person, meets with another person and we get together and we look each other in the eyes and we love one another and we hold on to one another. Jesus holds on to us by causing us to hold on to one another. We see the authority, the keeping authority of Jesus worked out in the lives of his people in these regular, unspectacular ways. And praise God, praise God for the ways this happens in our church all the time. In fact, just last Sunday, I was 
buzzing around like I do before Sunday morning, thinking about everything, wondering why I died. And somebody grabbed me and looked me in the eye and they said, hey, man, how are you? This is a young man that's been in this church for a long time. And I've had a lot of lunches with this young guy where I have looked at him in the eye and I've said, how are you doing? But this particular morning, he grabbed me and he says, how are you? No. And I kind of, yeah, I'm doing it. No. He grabbed me. No, no, no. We're going to lunch. How are you? How are you? How are you? Oh, give us, give us an unspectacular, committed band of people that love one another with this type of preserving grace. This is how Jesus keeps his people. Let's, Lord, give us more of that. The third thing I want us to see, and this is, I think is the, the highlight of this text, is the necessity of the cup. Now, this is an amazing, amazing scene. Let's look at verses 10 through 14 again. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, and we think of like a long sword. This was probably more like a short dagger that he would have been able to hold in his belt. Having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Now that doesn't happen every day. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, that's a pretty good swipe, and that's a pretty intense moment. And what strike several things stand out to me. The, the sort of casualness and, strangely, almost the lack of emphasis that John seems to give one of the more striking things that happened so far in the Gospel of John, moments before his arrest, one of his disciples pulls out a short sword, swings it violently at one of the official servants, so much so that he doesn't just nick him, he cuts off his right ear. Now, John doesn't include this, but Luke includes this in his gospel account. It says that Jesus then immediately, and we don't have any details, I wish we had more, I have questions, but all Luke intends to tell us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that Jesus heals this man. So does does Jesus pick his ear up off the ground and put it back on? Does he just touch his head and stop the bleeding? Does he touch his head and make his ear grow back? I don't know. We don't need to know. But it's remarkable. It's remarkable. And oh, by the way, who's doing this? Peter. Good old Peter. Who that we'll see next week after this moment of bravery and courage lies about knowing Jesus at a campfire in front of a teenage girl. So if Peter were planting a church, maybe he should name it Schizophrenics First Baptist Church. I mean, I'm, come on, Peter, Peter, in the same chapter, in the same scene, cuts off a guy's ear and denies knowing Jesus. Are you not strangely encouraged by the spectrum of Peter's spirituality? And what does Jesus say? Verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? 
And then again, without like, I mean, you'd think maybe somebody would be upset at Peter. You know, we're, we plan to arrest Jesus, but, you know, here's, here, this is another sort of crime that we need to do. But there's just no mention of it. Because, because the authority of Jesus has said, let him go, even though one of my guys just cut off one of your guys' ear. So verse 12, just, just everybody is just, just doing what Jesus says here in this moment. So the band of soldiers and their captain and officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Isn't that such a strange and glorious economy of words there? After somebody just cut off somebody's ear? First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas, and here's this wonderful irony. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient, listen to this, it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Well, amen, Caiaphas. But that's not really what Caiaphas meant there. Caiaphas had advised the Jews to just offer up Jesus as a kind of political pawn to satisfy the Romans so that they didn't think there was unrest among the Jews. But why does John put verse 14 in there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? I think to show the irony of the misunderstanding of the world and the actual reality that, yes, yes, it would be quite expedient. It would be quite expedient. And in fact, it's the gospel that one man and only one man can die for the sins of the people. Well, let's think about this cup and this scene before we land this plane. I just want you to note First, and I think this is a minor key. It's not the minor key that I want to play, but it is, a, it is a key that we need to look at. I think the major key is the cup that we're going to look at in a second, but this is a minor key. Is that we just note Peter's misunderstanding here. And I also want to note that in this band of 11 disciples who remain, Judas on the other side now betraying Jesus, notice this collective that Jesus has gathered around him. Here is Peter, who is a Jewish zealot. He is angry at the occupation of Israel by these Roman captors. So angry that he is willing to cut off the ear of one of these people that have come to arrest Jesus. And yet in that same 11, we have Matthew, who is a Jewish tax collector, who in a sense has spent his life selling out, collecting taxes from his people, to fund the occupation of this Roman army that has come now to arrest Jesus under the instruction of these Jewish people who misunderstand Jesus. So you have this right-wing zealot, and you have this woke sellout in Matthew, and these two men are both followers of Jesus. That's instructive in itself. And here we have Peter... By the way, neither one of them are right. They both have their ears. But here we have Peter cutting off the ear of this man who's come to arrest Jesus, which I think is a picture, a picture for us and a kind of warning for us that we can be prone to think that the problem is out there. It's political. It's external. It's physical. And Jesus tells him, no, 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 no. That this kingdom will not be advanced by power, by sword. It's advanced through my work on the cross. What are we to make of this? Are we to make of this that, that Christians should necessarily be pacifists? 
Well, some Christians think so and have argued such through the centuries. I personally don't. I'm not convinced by that argument. But I do think that this calls us to have a clear-headed understanding of the priority of the church and the mission of the church and the mission of Christians, which is gospel advance, not political advance. We are all prone, and I think Americans in particular are prone to put too much hope in politics or politicians or cultural renewal or reform in some sort of factor outside of us when what the gospel calls us primarily to is to work for heart change which then produces what the Lord has commanded. And this is a very difficult balance to strike, but I think we see it in the scriptures. I think you see the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament calling Israel to do good to the city. Yes, be good. Do good to the city that you're, that you're captives of. Do good to Babylon as much as you can. Yes, we should be involved in things. Yes, we should look for cultural reform on some level. Romans chapter 13 tells us that God has appointed these governments over us. And, and at times, these governments will execute judgment on wrongdoers. And certainly, Christians will be involved in executing that judgment in governmental office and should have influence over those decisions. In fact, we have a church full of people in the military, and you are the tip of the spear. You're the tip of the sword that God has given pagan civil government to actually be the means by which he actually keeps wickedness in check to some degree, even through the mechanism of a pagan government. So praise God for that. We should do that. And Paul, in fact, at the end of Acts, appeals to his Roman citizenship, his rights as a Roman citizen, for an appeal before Caesar in his arrest. So I am not saying that politics and policies are unimportant. We should care deeply about them. We should give ourselves to enacting good laws and electing officials who will be better for the advance of the gospel. But there is a fine line there, friends, because political power can become very seductive, and it will slowly and sometimes imperceptibly lead our hearts to put our trust in something out there rather than the sovereign Lord who promises that nothing, nothing will defeat the purposes of the gospel in the advance of the church. Just last night we met with a couple that are going to a closed country where the gospel is by and large hated by the government. And there's no opportunity Literally, at least in human means, there's no opportunity for any sort of political reform or renewal. And yet, the gospel will advance in this place. God will bring all of his people home. And this couple is going to be a missionary in this land. The wife of this couple, being a native of this land, they are going there not to try and change the political situation, but to change the hearts of people. And some Christians in that culture may be called to try and change that political situation, and that would be a good thing. But the hope does not lie there. Do you see that? And so Jesus tells Peter to put his sword away because he must drink the cup that the Father has given him. What does Jesus mean by the cup? 
that it's the cup that he has to drink, not the sword that he's come to swing. What did he mean by this? Well, the cup is a clear Old Testament reference to the wrath of God. Listen to Psalm 75, verses 7 through 8. It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. In other words, the wicked will drink the cup of God's wrath. He says to Israel in Isaiah 51, in, in judgment over Israel because of their rebellion, wake yourself. Isaiah 51, 17, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah 25, 15 through 17, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it, meaning drink God's wrath, experience his judgment is what the prophet is saying. And you might think, well, that's Old Testament. That doesn't apply to us anymore. No, no. No, we see this picked up in Revelation chapter 14, speaking of those who reject the Lord and his mercy. What is said about them? Revelation 14, 10. He, meaning the unbeliever who rejects the gospel, will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that on the cross, he's not just laying down his life as a sign of sacrificial love or good leadership or anything along those secondary lines, but primarily, Jesus is referring to the work on the cross as the cup. In other words, he will drink for his people. How do those people, how do sinners that the Father has given the Son make it all the way home to him. We've all been separated by our sin. How, do we, how are we reconciled to God? How is the great dilemma of Scripture that God is holy and we are sinful? How can we be reconciled to him? How will that happen? How will the bridge be gapped? How will our sins be atoned? Jesus says it, not by sword, but by the drinking of the cup. He says, don't prevent me, Peter. I'm going to the cross, and what I'm going to do on the cross is not just lay myself down as a sign of love for you, but even more primarily, I am going to drink the dregs of God's wrath for the sin of my people on the cross. That's what Jesus is going to do. And he drinks it for us. He drinks it dry. He bears our sin on the cross. He takes it upon himself. And now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the mission 
of the cross. That's the mission of Jesus. That's the mission of Jesus to proclaim that. We have something far, far more problematic than the next presidential election. We have something far more problematic than inflation or gas prices. We have something far more problematic than any political policy or any terrorist or any wicked regime. We have something far more problematic, and it is the righteous, holy anger of a holy God which is against us. And the question that every human soul must determine is, will you drink that wrath or will Jesus drink that wrath for you? That's the question now, friends. You will stand before the Lord someday And who will have drunk the cup of the wrath of God? You may have questions. You may say, well, why Why could God be wrath? Why is God like this? Why has he created a creation that could fall? Friends, those are legitimate questions that we can work out with an open Bible and a cup of coffee. I and any of the pastors or any seasoned Christian in this room would love to have that conversation with you. But friends, just for a moment, would you humble yourself and would you admit that you are a finite created being and there may be mysteries of the universe which you don't quite understand. And he is the potter and you are the clay. And let me just tell you, this is the clear witness of Scripture, is that he is holy and we are sinful and there is nothing that we can do in ourselves to bridge that gap apart from Jesus drinking the cup for you. So here's the question, and you may have others, and we can talk about it, but this is the primary question. Who will drink that cup for you? And Jesus says he goes to the cross and he drinks that cup for his people. And if he's drank it for you, there is no condemnation. We read it in Psalm 113. Your sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. He no longer counts our iniquity against us. And now, no matter what this world may do to you, you are his and he is yours. And you will be brought all the way home. And now, now you're free to give your life away to telling other people about this work of Jesus on the cross. And that's your primary mission. That's the primary mission of the church. His kingdom is coming. He will bring all of his people home, and we are his. Friends, there are only two religions in the world. A famous preacher. I can't remember who it is, but I have him in the back of my mind. I know he's famous, and I know he says this a lot, so this is not my thought, but I think it's wonderful. He says there are only two religions in the world. Either the religion of divine accomplishment, and that's the gospel, or the religion of human achievement. And that's everything else. Divine accomplishment, God does it, or you must do it. And friends, we can't do it. Can we drink the cup? No. Only Christ. Christ alone. That's the message of the church. That's the message of the gospel. That's the hope in which we're saved. Christ alone. Friends, if you're trying to drink that cup, you know something's wrong. You know you're off. You know you need help. And you're you're trying to drink that cup yourself, maybe through self-improvement or trying to get yourself right or whatever, reading some book, listening to some tape series, whatever, how to have a better Tuesday. Friends, the thing is you get a little sip and it just keeps filling back up. You get a little sip, you think you're making progress, and before you know it, that cup is overflowing again overflowing again with judgment. The only one who can dry that cup is Jesus. 
and he goes to the cross for all those that will turn and trust in him. Would you do that? Would you do that today? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you that nothing happened to Jesus in this chaotic scene outside of his utter sovereign control. Thank you, as our brother Spurgeon said 150 years ago or so, that Jesus drank damnation dry. Lord, I think that's the case for many in this room. May it be the case for all. And so if there are any within the sound of my voice or maybe hearing this later that are trying to drink their own cup, they're trying to empty it themselves, Lord, would they put it down? Would they put it down? Would they see the hardness of their heart? Would they recognize the authority of Jesus? And would they cry out in faith and repentance in Christ alone who can drink the cup dry and has on the cross for all that you have given him. Do this, I pray, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.